Hello, and welcome to Surroundscapes, an audio and video podcast series featuring a diverse collection of interviews with thought leaders from around the world, addressing the general subject of the future of business. This content is curated by Blue Sound Professional and focuses on the role of the oral and visual senses in creating unique, delightful and compelling experiences to stimulate business. This fourth series of Surroundscapes is focused on the future of music, a big question, I know, Uh, and we're really focused on two aspects of this question. One is uh, new ways of creating music, and the second one is how to properly monetize and value music in these changing times. So for this episode, I'd like to introduce Claire L. Evans, who's talking to us from LA. Claire, I think, has really interesting things to say about both aspects of this. So, and she also does many different things. So normally I I say what someone does at the beginning, but I'm just going to say, hello, Claire. (laughs) Hello. Um, So to start with, can you just explain what it is you do and and how you've got to 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 this moment in time you know how your career has developed yeah i mean that's the that's the question isn't it i I always find myself in the before times when i used to travel and you go back through customs after being abroad and you have to fill out the little customs forms that says you know in one word what is your job and it kind of depends on how i feel that day or how i feel the customs agent is going to look at me Uh, i usually write uh, writer, because I feel like it's a little bit less dubious than musician, but I'm a musician and I'm a writer and I'm an artist, I guess sort of an artist researcher. Uh, I'm someone who tries to pull lots of different aesthetic cultural threads together in one overarching practice. And sometimes that's a bit sloppy and sometimes it comes together in interesting and unexpected ways, which I'm sure we'll discuss. Yeah. Yeah. So I think some of the things that you've done are, um, writing for magazines. I know you've you've um, interviewed my favorite author, William Gibson, before. Yes, yes. Yeah, oh, I guess you, you want some more specifics. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be good. Yeah, I'm a long-time, I'm a long-time journalist. I was a science, science writer for many years. I'm kind of getting back into that now. Um, I was a science fiction editor for a long time. I'm also getting back into that now. Uh, I write about technology and culture and the places where technology and culture overlap. I'm interested in technology history specifically, personal histories of technology. I wrote a book called Broadband, which is a kind of feminist history of computing. That was published in, in 2018. Uh, and then, yeah, I'm, I play music as well. And I play music in a group called Yacht, uh, which has existed off and on in this world for almost 15 years under different forms and making different kinds of work. Uh, Yacht is kind of an experimental group. You know, we call ourselves a conceptual pop group and we tend to take on projects that have either a research component or uh, a technological component that is unexpected or uh, provides some kind of new challenge for us that teaches us something. Uh, all of our albums are kind of research projects that allow us to come out the other end with some some new knowledge and hopefully some interesting music. Excellent. Yeah, the, uh, your book, Broadband, is excellent. I, Thank you. It's uh, in fact, I last saw you at a, a book signing at, at our bookstore Powell's in Portland, where you grew up um, and mm-hmm. I still live. And Powell's is a wonderful bookstore that uh, that's an institution in Portland. But it's a it's a great book about the history of women in computing, and I think it's it covers a topic that that most people don't really think about. What what kind of prompted you to do that? I suppose it might have been that that most people don't really think about it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that draws me to all the projects that I take is uh, looking for something that isn't there, you know. So uh, in the case of broadband, I was just as a student, as a person who's curious about technology and and history of technology, I was looking for some kind of resource about um, the role that women have played historically in technology. And there weren't really any books about it. There's a couple sort of um, theory books from the 90s, but not a lot of, you know, research rigorous history on the subject, especially at kind of a popular level. Um, there's some academic histories as well, but not really a popular book. So I was looking for a book that I could read that would teach me about this. And unfortunately I had to write it in order for it to exist. So that there went three years of my life. <laughs> well, you did, and it's out in the world now and it's a fantastic book. Um, 
talk more about about yacht and also about the idea of of making a living as a musician in today's time because i know that that uh, <laughs> that you mentioned that that yacht albums are research projects and i think you you approach the the world of being a musician the life of being a musician in in quite a different way to to many musicians so you know before yeah. this pandemic you know what did making a living as a musician look like for, for you and Jonna? Well, it's always been multi-threaded and it's always been um, an, a small scale operation that kind of takes care of itself. I mean, both of us musically, culturally emerged out of, you know, DIY and, and punk scenes in the Pacific Northwest. Jonna's from Astoria. I'm from Portland, obviously. And we both came of age making music and listening to music and participating in music culture at this at a highly independent level at the level of you know groups of people starting their own bands with very little to no talent booking their own shows making their own records making their own merchandise building community and building sort of networks of communities across the country at a highly independent level um so that's always been our expectation of how music is done you know we've always operated a little bit outside of the traditional musical infrastructure. We've had record labels, uh, several record labels, you know, and we've worked in that structure as well, but we've never really thought of ourselves as being part of a music industry. We've always thought of ourselves rather as being part of a music scene or a music community or a music culture, which means that our expectations of, you know, massive financial success have always been tempered by (laughs) your classic punk rock fear of selling out, you know, it's always been a balance. So we've always, kept it, kept things small, kept things family, kept, kept things, um, I guess for the lack of a better word, thrifty. I mean, we've always recorded at home on um, mediocre gear. We've always worked with friends. We've always tried to bring, you know, people into our, our little operation that are people that we know and love and who's, who we respect. We've toured all around the world at every possible scale from, you know, driving around in a rented minivan to, you know, flying and playing festivals. And it's all kind of the same, really, as long as you you keep a uh, certain pragmatism about, you know, what the business really is. We feel really lucky and blessed that we've been able to do what we do for such a long time. But I think part of it is because we've always been really realistic about um, doing it in an efficient way, doing it in an e- economical way. Um, you know, we haven't blown all of our resources on super expensive lighting rigs or having a huge crew or anything. Even at the height of our popularity, we never really traveled with more than like four or five people. And that's enabled us to uh, continue to operate at a scale that is comfortable for us. And it's also kept us, I don't know, it's kept us kind of honest, I suppose, or it's kept us uh, in a place where we're constantly trying new things and we're able to try new things and we're able to take risks and we're able to do exactly what we want to do because we're not really beholden to anybody mm-hmm. um, other than our own expectations of what we want our work to be. Um, you know, there's certainly times when it's a bit <laughs> like, you know, we're we're scrabbling our way through it, but we always manage. Um, and I think we've built up a reputation over the years as being people who are willing to try things and fail and try again and reinvent ourselves. That's another thing I think is really important, um, you know, being a band for as long as we have, you know, 15 years with a lot of albums, a lot of tours, there's been lineup changes. There's been, I mean, really on paper, maybe there's been like 10 different versions of the band, but they're all the same band, you know, and I like that. I like there being a kind of continuity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an evolution that you can kind of track and and study and, and learn from maybe. Yeah, I, I just want to stop here and ask one question that's always interested me and I, I haven't asked you which is the 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 name of the band's an acronym standing for young americans challenging high technology what was what's the history behind that it's a funny question because it's originally jonna jonna named the band in 2002 2003 i'm terrible with dates but uh after a building that he saw in north portland Mm. uh we have a photo of it we have no record of what the business was but there was a business somewhere in north portland called yacht young americans challenging high technology and when jonna saw the building saw the sign for the first time it had already fallen into disrepair it had already gone out of business the last thing that had happened there was some kind of birthday party and there was a broken window with a happy birthday sign hanging halfway out the window and he loved this vision of this kind of decrepit building uh that had stood for some ambiguously 
kind of, uh, I don't know, adversarial stance against technology. Um, and so we built this kind of mythology around the Young Americans Challenging Technology building for many years. And we, we told reporters for years in, early in our career that it was an after-school program that we had participated in and it was, you know, kind of neo-Luddite training camp or something. But, um, you know, that was all hooey. What it really is now, I think, is this more like a, I don't know, it's kind of a position more than it is a band name in a way. I, it's like, we're always in this constant dialogue with technology. I don't think of challenging as, as being necessarily adversarial. I don't think of it as being no, we're anti-technology, but we want to, you know, we want to remain in, in dialogue. We want to continue to have a dynamic relationship with it and to not let the tools we use define the kind of work that we make, the form of the kind of work that we make. And if they do, we want to be sort of conscious of that and, um, you know, be willing to talk about it and be, be able to articulate it. So it's, I don't know, it's this kind of leery relationship with technology that is a back and forth that has changed and has evolved so much over the years. I mean, I think about our early career, I mean, we were coming from this punk world and we were hoping to use technology in punk ways, you know, using Photoshop and Ableton Live to make us look bigger than we were and to give us, you know, a, a level of gloss that would allow us to, you know, infiltrate mainstream culture and, you know, look and, and operate, at least from the experiential position of the viewer, to be like a real band, quote unquote. Uh, now things have changed so much. I mean, I, our relationship with technology has changed so much. And the, and the platforms that were the most exciting and liberating to us in the early aughts are now the platforms that oppress and control and surveil and and limit us and, and alienate us from our fans in a way. I mean, we used to be able to use MySpace to book tours, and now we have to pay Mark Zuckerberg for our, you know, 100,000 Facebook followers to even see a post that we make. So it's changed a lot. And I don't feel as liberated by uh internet the internet as i did when i was younger but that's why i'm glad we keep that word challenging in the band name because it it keeps us on our toes yeah that's that that comes across in in your career that, that you've you've this relationship that that's conversant with the technology of the day but also not um blindly accepting of it i suppose i'd, I'd say how I mean, you, you touched on Facebook there. You know, how do you feel about ways of getting of connecting with with your fans, the good and the bad of it? You know, you mentioned about paying for, for for having to interact with your fans via Facebook. Are there are there ways that you find effective now and kind of subversive now, or are, are you funneled into the conventional social media? platform i mean we have to be funneled into those platforms to a certain extent obviously i mean we're on all of the platforms but we have no enthusiasm really for using them i'm always surprised by you know we live in a world where our every interaction seemingly with our fans is tracked and mediated and and you know given to us in the form of likes and retweets and views etc but that really honestly means nothing you know i we go on tour where well, we used to go on tour in the in the before times but you go on tour and you know, you play a gig and you talk to people after the show. And it's like, there's this 15 year body of experience of people passing through our lives again and again, people growing up with us, people who's had life experiences that are, you know, affected or determined by their relationship to our music or their experience at a show in the past. And you can't, you just, you just can't measure that, you know? And I feel like there's always this great invisible Unknown, there's always this great unknown of like what your actual impact is as an artist, even though it seems it seems as though your impact is right in front of you in the form of all these metrics. The metrics reveal absolutely nothing about what the actual experience is and what the actual relationships are. I mean, we often talk about things like YouTube views in the context of kind of like punk shows or something, because you can have a YouTube video that 500 people have watched it. Maybe it changed every single one of those 500 people's lives in the same way that like seeing the Sex Pistols in you know 1979 would have changed the 12 people's lives in the room. I mean, you mm -hmm. can't really measure that kind of impact in terms of metrics. And I know that just sounds like a someone who's in a band that doesn't get a lot of YouTube views justifying after the fact, but I really feel that way. And I think, you know, I take great pride in the fact that we have developed these longstanding personal relationships with the people whose lives we've touched over the years. And I I think that is more valuable than than anything that any of these platforms could serve to us in terms of data. And it often has no relationship to it whatsoever. That's, that's interesting on a couple of levels. I 
so what would it be 40 years ago now i was playing in bands and things and we were just at the time where it became viable to to produce your own records or cds in those days and so we were just at the time of kind of self-publishing um but it was still expensive and you still had to you know and and on one hand i now look at at the ability of people to just put stuff out really easily um and i look at it ambivalently in some ways because um it's very freeing but also Mm. you know the sense of quality control a sense of um of mastery in any form and and you talk about coming coming up through the punk movement and and certainly as a kind of musician in those days again i was ambivalent to the to the punk movement in the sense that i was really fed up with the excesses of of the big bands in the in the kind of 70s but equally as a musician that had learned an instrument it was like does that not count for anything anymore but it's interesting to hear you talk now about in a sense the 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 platforms that many people see as liberating the ability for for, to talk to fans easily for fans to talk to each other for it no longer to be for there being vehicles for doing that but they really weren't in my days the radio or the tv or putting a record out and getting it bought and distribute physically distributed but equally there's the downside of it that, that you know that you're talking about um and this idea of of metrics for everything um because things are so difficult to quantify now um mm-hmm. where it's much more peer-to-peer in the old days it was like nielsen ratings and and kind of eyeballs on adverts and records bought whereas now it's it's much much more nebulous it's you know kind of streams or people lending music to others and and it's it's just interesting to hear you you talk about being kind of um constrained by that but also those those real life experiences that i think were probably no different to me 40 years ago than they are to you now you know get, mm-hmm. doing festivals doing gigs seeing the same people year after year um you know that that to me was what was so important so it's really interesting to hear that it is to you even now yeah i mean it's about people we i think we forget yeah when we when we become obsessed with whatever views and streams and we forget that each one of those there's a person behind each one of those mm-hmm. and what it means and and you know i don't know i mean it's just because something has been seen a lot of times or listened to a lot of times doesn't mean it's better than something that hasn't in fact mm-hmm. i was who was it oh i think it was holly herndon that tweeted this the other day i think she was saying like Star Wars is not Stalker. You know, you're not going to watch Stalker a hundred times in a row. You might watch Star Wars a hundred times in a row, but that doesn't mean that Star Wars is better than Stalker. Um, you know, the quality of experience that you have when you watch something or listen to something, it's, you know, some stuff isn't made for mass consumption and something is, some, things, some things aren't made to be listened to over and over again either. Um, you know, you kind of have to meet the work where it is. Mm-hmm. And there's always an audience for experimental work or, you know, work that challenges the mainstream conception of what pop is it's just that audience isn't going to be massive and that's fine i mean i think everything suffers at scale frankly i mean that's the trouble that's what happened to the internet is all these platforms are trying to be everything to everybody and you just can't do that you just can't create an environment that is safe for one or conducive to human creativity conducive to human connection conducive to anything positive when you are trying to appeal to an audience in the billions mm-hmm. you always the product always suffers mm-hmm. it's rare that good art <laughs> appeals at a mass scale yeah um, yep. without suffering yep. at least in the current economy you know i think things maybe were different in the past but but now certainly not yeah i've always i've always thought that 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 whatever the art whether it's um you know painting music whatever it is furniture making let's say it's it's interesting that that the experimental stuff is is listened to by or, or consumed by people largely without significant incomes, and by the time you're old enough to have a significant income, you're no longer listening to experimental stuff, and whether it's kind of buying painting scenes, for, uh, hunting scenes, sorry for for your living room wall instead of kind of cutting edge contemporary art, 
or listening to this, you know, the Rolling Stones that you listen to while you're at university 40 years later on some mega tour. It's, it's kind of a, a conundrum, really, because the people that are producing interesting stuff, uh, you know, have this challenge being, being heard by, by large markets. And something I've been thinking about in the last few days, actually, is wondering whether there's a middle ground, wondering whether, you know, like you have a, opinion formers, you've got, you know, YouTube channels, whatever, that, that have millions of, of subscribers. And then you have a ton of little things, podcasts, virtual conferences that, if, you know, if, if a friend of mine in Germany um, has for 20 years done an experimental um, music festival called Digital Analog, and they did it online last year, uh, a virtual festival. And it was hundreds of people saw it rather than you know, tens of thousands as, as would be in the live event. And, and a lot of the conferences I go to, I, I was just at one earlier on today, it, you know, hundreds of people. And what I don't see is, is anything much between the hundreds of people and the millions of people. Do mm-hmm. you think there's that middle ground of, of influence that's somewhere between those two? No. I don't. I don't. I don't. I mean, I think now we're living in a world where communities of, I mean, this is my dream scenario is that communities of hundreds of people, multiply overlapping little Venn diagrams of communities of hundreds of people are spread out over the same real estate that normally millions of people would be in. You know, I think that's nicer. I think that allows space for actual human connection and actual meaningful experience. If at every scale. I mean, as a, as a participant in something like a small festival like that, I mean, you're able to maybe make connections with other festival goers, even in a virtual space that you certainly wouldn't have been able to make if you were, you know, just a tiny, tiny cog in a much bigger machine. So I, that for me is hopeful. And I think it doesn't necessarily mean that those hundreds of hundreds of person scale communities are siloed from one another. I think they're constantly shifting and changing. And that's mm-hmm. what I like about it. It's funny. It kind of reminds me of living in Los Angeles is what I loved, at least in the before times about living in LA, is that there are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of these micro scenes all over the city. And they're not insular, you know, people who are in the repertory film world overlap with people who are in the experimental noise world, who are in the video art world, who are in the museum world, who are in the gallery world, who are in the whatever. There's this sense that you can come and come and go between different scenes, depending on what your interest is in a specific moment. And there are lots of overlaps and there are lots of affinities that happen in that way. And I think that's really beautiful mm. and something I hope to see reflected more in virtual space. Now, I want to pick up on something you said a little bit earlier, but um, before I go there, I was talking to a friend in, in Europe a couple of days ago who who's also a musician kind of um, making a living, if you like. Um, and she had a a fan base and then kind of went on social media and and really got a significant fan base but the problem that she found was that there weren't many of them in any one place so actually touring was very difficult because mm. in the old days you 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 tour locally in your own town and you'd build like a, a fan base that could fill out a club or fill out a theater. And then maybe you'd expand to the, you know, the next few towns and that sort of thing. And in England where I grew up, maybe you'd then go and play gigs in London and you know, build up your audience. Whereas now if you've got a global audience, but there's not very many of them in any one place, it makes it really, really difficult to tour. Have you found that? It's difficult to decide where to tour. We've been touring for so long that we have, I mean, again, not a massive fan base in, in any one place either, but enough to make it sustainable to tour in the same places and repeatedly. Um, but it's funny. I mean, sometimes you look at like your streaming data or whatever, or where people are buying albums on Bandcamp and you find like, oh, there's two people in Kazakhstan who shazammed our band yesterday. I mean, should we go there? I don't think so. But also you don't necessarily have to have fans already in a place when you go tour there. That's if, at least if you're operating at a very small scale, like we historically have, if you don't have a very big footprint, it's not very expensive for you to travel. Um, you can go anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, true. we toured in, in China in 2009 or something. 
you know, just basically with backpacks crossing the country on trains and playing in coffee shops to 15 people. Maybe we turned those people on for life. I don't know. They de they definitely weren't already fans of the band by the time we got there. But sometimes you can you can convert people in real space. It's sometimes more effective that way as long as you can get them in the door somehow. Um, that's I don't know. I'm a fan of of moving in that direction, you know, starting with the, starting with the in-person and then, and then using the digital as a way of keeping in yeah. touch yeah. kind of rather than trying to turn the digital fan into a, you know, brick and mortar individual. It's much harder to make that conversion. Mm -hmm. Well, as a drummer, I dream about touring with a backpack. <laughs> that's, that's just not going to happen for me anytime. That's why we fired our drummer. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Um, Coming back to, to someone you talked about, you mentioned earlier, Holly Herndon. So mm -hmm. in 2019, I think that must have been, um, her album Proto came out and it just moved me in a way that I did not expect to be moved. Um, and the backstory to that album is, as well as it being a unique blend of of her kind of Southern Sacred Heart stuff, uh, throat singers from from originally from Eastern Europe, it had this artificial intelligence called Spawn that that was an integral part of both the composing and the performance of the of the album. Mm -hmm. And you could hear through the album how Spawn gradually learnt to learn her place. Uh, and I went to see Holly live after that, and and um, it was different again. I want to ask you about your your experience using Google Magenta AI on, on an album at about the same time, because I'm just fascinated. Yeah, I mean, there's a the difference between our work and Holly's is that she was working with AI at the level of sound and we were working at the level of mm -hmm. notes and lyrics as well. So we're, we were working at a symbolic level, more structural than with the actual sound. We wanted to, well, let me give you the backstory. So basically we, we made this album called Chain Tripping, which came out in 2019, that uh, is kind of this scotch taped together <laughs> product of multiple different machine learning tools and, and approaches, because we couldn't quite find one that fit for everything that we wanted to do. We went into the project as kind of a research enterprise. As I said earlier, that's how we tend to work um, with this idea that we wanted to make an album, quote unquote, with AI, using AI in kind of a reflective way. We wanted to use AI to understand ourselves as artists and to understand, um, you know, if there's some kind of secret formula to the music that we make, if there's some pattern to our aesthetic influences, if there's some, you know, fundamental yachtness that it can be that can be sort of whittled down, you know, alphanumerically into into a formula or an algorithm. Uh, there isn't, which I'm I'm pleased to report that there isn't. Um, but that was the initial idea. Um, so we started playing around with the available machine learning tools. Uh, it's a kind of a difficult landscape for non-programmers to get into. We are not, uh, we're, tech, we're technical, but we're not programmers, we're not coders. And so we didn't really have a lot of the resources, perhaps, that maybe someone with a little bit more proficiency in, in that approach would have. But I think it allowed us to look at things a little bit more impartially and try to find tools that we could kind of bend and manipulate to our own interests. Initially, we wanted to kind of train an algorithm on our back catalog and, and use it to spit out new songs. But it turns out you need a lot of data to do that. Um, we have 82 songs in our back mm -hmm. catalog. That's, you know, 15 years of music. It's pretty respectable, yeah. but it's nowhere close to the amount of data that you need to train a machine learning model to generate new songs. Um, and even with that, you can't generate a song with structure. You can't generate a song with lyrics. You can't generate a song. Uh, beyond just a kind of long sequence of MIDI notes that has no form and uh, no repetition and no rhythm. So we were kind of at a loss as to how we would make an album with AI with those kind of limitations in place. But we ultimately found a couple of different approaches that worked for us. We had to sort of separate everything out. So uh, we separated the lyrics from the music for one. Um, and so we started by uh, taking our entire back catalog of 82 songs, manually annotating it into MIDI, uh, which means pulling apart sometimes, you know, hundreds of layered tracks from our, you know, our Ableton files and converting them into MIDI, breaking those uh, MIDI sequences into short patterns or loops, and then running those loops in pairs repeatedly over and over and over again through this machine learning model. 
uh, called a latent space interpolation model, which is a, a tool, a kind of research tool that was made open source and available for free by a team at Google Brain called Magenta. Um, it was kind of the only music tool that we could find that wasn't either on one end of the spectrum, like incredibly handholdy and um, opaque and, you know, gave you no control whatsoever and just pure coding. It was the sort of thing that existed in between that you could kind of like put things in, bonk it around, take things out, run them through over and over again. Um, we did it using a, a what's called a collab notebook, which is like a, you know, a spreadsheet basically that's connected to a Google server. And uh, so we managed to run these melodies uh, in pairs through this through this model repeatedly. And what the model did was, it's a, a latent space interpolation model. So it's uh, basically a mathematical way of exploring the high dimensional mathematical space between melodies, which for us, we felt was a really interesting way of exploring kind of the songs hidden in between the songs we had already written. So you know, if we took two melodies from two songs from two different periods of our career and ran through this model, it would spit out this kind of Frankenstein in-betweeny hallucination uh, that was something of both, but nothing of either in a way. Uh, fascinating. And so we just, we did that again and again until we had hundreds and hundreds of, of these kind of formless MIDI files of melodies that were, you know, extrapolated from this latent space between our existing songs. But then that's kind of where the machine learning ended for us because we couldn't really find a way of putting those songs together into those bits together into songs without actually as human beings coming in and starting to make mm. decisions, which was the most exciting part of it for us actually was, was listening to these melodies, which were completely sideways from anything we would have ever written, even though they were kind of mathematically extrapolated from our own past, they were so weird and wonky and broken and, and, and odd that, yeah, we never would have written them ourselves. So we found all these little bits and we found pieces that we thought were, um, you know, compelling for whatever reason, you know, we used our unique uh, capacities as human beings to determine what we actually liked, uh, just based on, purely on taste, you know, no, no algorithm involved. And then we took those fragments and we pieced them together into songs like, like putting together a puzzle from all these disparate pieces. And then we performed everything live. So we assigned the, the different fragments of melodies to different instruments, to drums, guitars, keyboards, vocal melodies, bass lines, and performed them all live uh, in this kind of ultimately quite physically challenging way, actually, because the melodies, again, were, because they were not written by people, they didn't emerge from any kind of embodied experience or relationship to music. They were not made with a body in mind. They weren't, you know, noodled on the piano or jammed on the guitar in a room together. They were written in this very cold mathematical way. And so even though some of them were simple, they were just rhythmically weird or structurally weird. They just had no relationship to the physical experience of playing music. And it made us realize how much of our music emerges from these kinds of embodied patterns of play that we're accustomed to having. We're accustomed to jamming in a certain way. We're accustomed to playing in a certain way. We play what feels good. We're yep. human beings. Yep. We play what feels good, uh, especially as people who come from punk, you know, like we're not virtuosic players. We're people who, who, who play what feels good in the room. So that in itself was a fascinating challenge and a really interesting way of kind of breaking open our own embodied experiences and habits and, and learning new experiences and habits and kind of incorporating these new ways of playing into our skill set, which now inform the way we write songs in the future. Super interesting, uh, challenging, interesting piece of it. The lyrics emerged from a completely different process. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can bore you to tears with all these no, details, but uh, okay. The lyrics emerged from a completely parallel process, somewhat similar in spirit. We wanted to, you know, have a lyrics writing algorithm that would draw from our past in some way that would evoke uh, the truth of, you know, the true essence of who we are as musicians. Um, so we worked with a creative technologist named Ross Goodwin, uh, kind of a gonzo coder, hacker, artist, poet, mm -hmm. genius. And um, we built this corpus of, I forget the number, I think it's like 2 million words or something. It's this massive amount of text, huge amount of text uh, of lyrics from every band that we've ever mm -hmm. liked, essentially. I mean, all the music we grew up listening to, the music our parents liked, the music from all of our friends' bands, our own lyrics, you know, the entire body of work of everything we've ever considered to be an influence. And then we trained a, a, what's called a character recurrent neural network, which is a text generating neural network on that model and so it could generate new songs uh, based on, you know, it was essentially, we, we essentially taught a machine learning model how language with its only input being song lyrics from bands that we like and our own mm -hmm. music. 
so it was this kind of little um i guess sort of textual version of spawn kind of i mean it's just based on on the, what we fed it and that for me i mean i'm a writer primarily so that for me was the most fascinating part of the process was just the way that this machine learning model treated language and the kind of language that it generated it was so endlessly fascinating and there's this parameter that you can tweak on both the text side and on the music side called temperature, mm -hmm. which is um, essentially like the the riskiness mm -hmm. of the model, the kind, the level of risk the model is willing to take when it makes its next prediction. So if the temperature is really low, um, it's not going to take very many risks. It's You present it with the letter A and it's probably going to say, well, maybe the next letter should be N because that's a, you know, and is a common word. Or, you know, same with, with music, you present it with a note and it's going to make a guess about the next note that, that makes sense tonally. Uh, so you end up getting, if you have these low temperature parameters in place for the lyrics, you end up getting these hyper repetitive sort of elemental kind of lizard brain mm -hmm. interpretations of what song lyrics are. A lot of commands, a lot of, you know, oh, baby, 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 baby for a hundred pages, you know, because that's what the AI thinks song lyrics are at, the, at sort of the most predictable scale which translated really well for us to like a sort of punk and also you know um the kinds of lyrics that you see in the choruses of songs mm -hmm. you know much mm -hmm. simpler much more stripped down if you turn the temperature up the model takes way more risks it goes all over the place uh, musically if you turn the temperature up you start getting notes like all the way off the map textually you start getting uh neologisms you start getting you know invented words you start getting weird proper names you start getting these long crazy run-on sentences that sound like you know hallucinatory country western music you know you get you start getting this really weird stuff and that's where some of the more interesting lyrics that we pulled uh, ultimately for the verses of songs you know a little bit more imagistic a little bit more narrative so we ended up basically taking this this corpus of of song lyrics that was generated for us from an AI and printing it out onto a single sheet of dot matrix printer paper in this massive sort of sculptural block. And I brought that physically into the studio and just sat on the floor highlighting stuff that I liked. And then we used the same kind of, I guess, cut up mm -hmm. process uh, to arrange the song lyrics. It was interesting, too, because... By the time we got to creating the song lyrics for this album, we had already structured mostly the songs themselves, the melodies, the vocal melodies. So what I was doing was looking at text and trying to find um, lines, trying to find sections of text that would fit onto these predetermined melodies. So again, instead of singing what felt right, instead of making sounds and forming those sounds into words while you're kind of jamming, trying to figure out the top line of a melody for a song in a kind of intuitive and embodied way, you're literally looking at words and thinking, how many syllables are in this word, and can I can I plonk mm -hmm. those onto the you know onto the frame of this MIDI melody that we have? Um, you know, really a deeply unintuitive way of making music. The whole process. I mean, it's such a joke because I think that uh, some of the response to the album, at least in the press, has been, oh, you know, they automated their process. They made it so much easier because they used machine learning. They used AI. They you know they they outsourced their work to an AI like done and yep. dusted so easy it was incredibly <laughs> tedious incredibly tedious and that's what happens when you want to have any measure of control over what you do I mean sure yes there are systems you can use that where you just input like I want a thirty second dance song with a break at thirty you know uh, with a break halfway through and a you know and this this and this and it'll spit out something sort of musical but that's not a song that's not something that you can put on an album and tour and sing and perform to your fans who have loved you for 15 years. You have to do something real. You have to do something with stakes, something that you're emotionally attached to and that you can sing and actually mean, mm -hmm. you know, that was kind of the end game mm -hmm. for us was how can we use machine learning to help us create songs that we can, that we can mean, <laughs> that can mean something to us and that we can mean. So that was it. You know, it was this unbelievably complex and tedious cut up process, this, this sort of endless collage and this kind of kaleidoscopic fragmented collage of of all of these jumbled up bits and pieces and it was so fascinating because yeah i mean normally when you sit down to write a song you you, you jam you write in notebooks you 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 work up source material and then you take that source material at least we do and arrange it into something but when the source material is generated by machine you're kind of in this strange relationship to your own work where you're trying to you're trying to put on meaning after the fact or something. You're trying to, you're trying to, yeah, you're trying to put something together that makes sense. And then, and then you, in the same way that maybe your fans would later uh, 
you're trying to figure out what it means as you're doing it. And then even even touring the music and singing and performing it, you know, in the before times, right before um, COVID, we were touring this album and, you know, I'm singing these songs. I don't really know what they mean. I have my own guesses as to what they mean. And the fans have their own guesses. And we're kind of forming this this narrative around the songs together. We're making them mean something together and we're figuring it out together as we go, which I really loved that aspect of it. Um, yeah, all that. And there was a couple other sort of AI bits on, on the album as well. I mean, we used a few, we used uh, a tool called an, an N-Synth, a neural synthesizer, which was also another open source Google tool that we use on the album in a few places. We also used the same model that Holly Herndon used, sample RNN, which is an audio, um, you know, a recurrent neural network for, for audio samples. We use some of that in some places, but ultimately we didn't love that aspect of it because it had a really kind of low fidelity. Mm -hmm. It didn't sound very good. I mean, in order to generate audio clips using machine learning, you it's just like so data intensive. You can't actually, you can't actually produce something that sounds good. Like the compression is yeah. really bad. So it sounds kind of rinky dinky. Mm -hmm which is cool in, in places for us anyway. Uh, we liked having more control over the, the sound by, um, by operating a symbolic level purely. My neighbor is smashing something outside. I, I can hear something. <laughs> he's banging on a wheel well of his car. I think he's almost done. Anyway. <laughs> that was interesting. I was wondering whether it was an artifact or what. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's great that they've got this really low tech sound banging on a wheel while you're talking about neural networks and and machine learning. There is something in the you know I've always really loved, and this is something that's kind of a through line in all of our work is the the relationship between sort of high tech and lo fi. Mm -hmm. I mean, I like, for example, you know, printing out all of these lyrics on the yeah. dot matrix printer yeah. paper. I mean, we're using this incredibly you know, incredibly sophisticated cutting edge process for generating massive amounts of text via using an AI. And yet the actual material experience of working with it is just sitting with a block of paper and a highlighter because at the end of the day, that works better, you know? And so I think you sort of take, you take the things that you like from all of these different tools and then you incorporate them into your working process in a way that's, that's actually feasible and practical. That to me is a lot of fun. And I think mixing the high and the low, mixing the, the high tech and, and the lo-fi in one in one process is it's just yeah it's it's yacht in a mm -hmm. nutshell so i have so many questions about that but but and i can only ask a few of them okay. otherwise we'll talk for hours but when you were let's start with the melodies it's it's really interesting you know you you said about the patterns the physical patterns that, that you as a musician revert to and, and people talk about guitar songs written on guitars versus songs written on pianos because the sorts of patterns that you're you fall into if you're composing on a, a guitar are different to those that you fall into if you're composing on a piano and and it, obviously it's different again when when it's it's an automated process did you i think i know the answer to this from what you said but did you use like a, a fragment of of melody as an inspiration the same way as traditionally someone might you know have a chord sequence on a guitar and then you run with it or did you literally cut and paste a number of these together to form the structure of the song uh the latter the the output of the model that we used it would just output a sequence of of midi data that had no structure so you know maybe there would be you know two bars here that were really interesting or just a, you know, a small pattern here that sounds really good if you loop it. Um, those are the, the bits and pieces that we took. We took, there are some, if you listen to the album, the sort of the most odd sounding melodies are the ones which are taken unbroken from, from the output of the model. You can really tell which ones are, are little kind of long riffs. They're these non-repeating. I think uh, there's an engineer at, at, uh, at Magenta, Doug Eck, who we worked with a little bit on this project, and he just he describes the melodies that the model put out as music falling down mm -hmm. the stairs, which is really exactly what it sounds like. It's it just kind of tumbles away, mm -hmm. you know, on its own kind of iterative journey that it doesn't really make any sense. And in some places that's really fun to play with, but other places it's useless because it doesn't, you know, your mind has nothing to hook onto really. I mean, when you're listening to it, it's very difficult. And it's another thing that we learn from this is you know, how much as listeners and, and as creators of music, we're looking for pattern, we're looking for repetition. That's, you know, kind of 
the heart of pop mm-hmm. music, the heart of dance music is, is the power of repetition. So, you know, trying to take <laughs> take these generative systems, which which produce music, which never repeats itself and try to make something that you can dance to is quite mm-hmm. difficult uh, unless you cut and paste. But yeah, I mean, sometimes, yeah, it's sometimes we would take generated MIDI data from, you know, five or 10 different files mm-hmm. and assign them and layer them on top of one another. So it was really, I mean, I think something I talk about a lot in relation to this album is that our biggest influences for in terms of working process were, you know, not really technological. We were looking at like Dada poets and writers who used cut up methods. In fact, we were looking at David Bowie yeah. who used yeah. cut up throughout his entire career, both paper cutups and a kind of computer program that he designed in the 90s called the Verbicizer um, that he would use to randomly shuffle up sequences of words. I mean, there's a long tradition in the, you know, the historical, literary, and musical avant-garde of, of taking found material and jumbling it up in some novel way and rearranging it. Um, what we were doing was a kind of meta jumble in a way. We were taking it, we were jumbling it even deeper at a stranger, at the sort of semantic level uh, and then working with the output from there. But it was pretty much that. I mean, it was pretty much cut-ups. It was, it was taking fragments and arranging them into a meaningful form, which I think essentially is the nature of making mm-hmm. art. Um, it's, you know, turning chaos into yeah. meaning. It's just the point at which you begin, like where the chaos is changes, but the meaning-making process remains the same. So that leads me on to, to um, the other side of the, the thing, which is the, the melodies and the, uh, the, the lyrics. So you were looking for mm-hmm. for literally words that that fit the number of syllables and things. Did you were you also and and you talked a bit about this creating meaning after the fact, but did you look at creating a narrative form to those words, or were they completely random? No, not completely random. I mean, it wasn't at the level of the word. It would be like a phrase mm-hmm. or two uh, fitting on top of an existing melody. And sometimes another really fun thing we would do is if the phrase that we wanted to use wouldn't fit on the melody that we had generated, we would start to actually look at the phrase at the level of the syllable and look at ways of breaking syllables apart so that they Mm -hmm. would fit. You know, there are certain ways of pronouncing words in the English language, you know, certain emphasis and rhythm that is inherent in the language itself that didn't work when we were trying to assign them to melodies. So then it was like, how can we pronounce this word differently? Or how can we pull these syllables apart in an unintuitive way in order to make them fit? which forced me as a songwriter to think about words first as sounds mm-hmm. and then as yep. meaning, which is like how songwriters who write pop songs work already. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, there's a there's a book about uh, Swedish pop songwriters called The Song Machine that was a big influence for us when we were writing this book. I mean, when we were making this album uh, that talks a lot about the melodic math that producers like Dr. Luke use, where they're just thinking about how a certain syllable sounds, you know, when when sung in a certain mm. note, and they have these charts of what words work where, which is why most big pop songs, especially in the last 10, 15 years, like are completely meaningless at a semantic level because they they're just working on this. They're just about sound, um, and it's really helpful when you're writing songs to not get too tied up in the meaning. I, that's always been one of my biggest problems as a songwriter is I just I I get too emotionally attached to what a song means or the narrative of a song, and I don't allow myself to actually serve the higher purpose of making the song sound good and feel good because I really want it to fit, you know? But when you don't have that constraint at all and you're really just thinking about sound, it really liberates you to write songs completely differently. And then you end up with these strange songs where the meaning isn't immediately apparent, but it is there if you look Mm -hmm. for it. And it's constantly evolving. And it's constantly changing. And again, that's something that I've experienced a lot over the years is, you know, we write a song, you know, there's songs we've written 10 years ago that we've been playing for 10 years. And I guarantee you, they don't mean the same thing to me now than they did right. 10 years ago. And they've ex- they've had many meanings over the years, depending on my perspective on my own work and depending on what, the influence of other mm-hmm. people. So meaning is fluid. I think meaning is very fluid, especially in the context of a song. I mean, if we reinvent a song every time we play it live, then why not also reinvent what it means? So there's a there's a podcast, I don't know if you know it, called Strong Songs, done by um, a, a guy in Portland here, uh, Kirk Hamilton. And he he analyzes songs. It's, it's, a, it's a decent uh, podcast to listen to. And he's just done a song that means a lot to me, which is my friend Imogen Heap's song, Hide and Seek. And it got me to thinking about that song. And that song's very resonant to a lot of people. And... One of the things I was thinking about is that song is made up of 
phrases. It doesn't have a like, like a narrative in the conventional sense. And I was, I've been thinking a lot in the last week or two about whether that allows the listener to build really their own picture in a much more freeing way than if it was a more conventionally narrative song. Um, yeah. So I think that's there's there's something to be said for that. I I think I mean it kind of works either way. I think I think sometimes there's remarkable universal universality in specificity. Mm -hmm. Actually, you know, you have a song that specifically mentions you know a place and time or a moment that seems so idiosyncratic and so localized to the performer but there's something about the specificity of that detail that feels really broad and universal or touches of touches something much bigger touches an emotion that is that is bigger and relatable in a way so i think it can go either way i think it's really about providing a balance between those two things i don't want to write songs that are so oblique that they mean nothing to anybody <laughs> But I do want to write songs that are open enough to interpretation that people can bring their own yeah. meaning to them and feel validated in their interpretation. Yeah, I think if you can do that, it feels more personal to you because you can wear it as your song rather than it being the song of the songwriter that you choose to listen to. Yeah, it's, exactly. I mean, uh, Chain Tripping is a great album and, and it has, I, I, I love that. I was actually playing it just before uh, we went on air and uh, to, to, to re-listen to it and it's funny because that album and Proto, the Holly Herndon album, emotionally move me more than the work that you've done before or that she's done before. And they both have very different ways of, of being made. And I wonder, in my case, being a kind of music fan and musician for so many years, whether it is because of the things that no human would have done, whether it's like this, this new language that's super emotional to me because it's because it's different i think there's i think it's what you do with it you know I, there's a lot of machine learning and ai driven art and music out there that makes me feel absolutely mm -hmm. nothing because it's mostly just operating at the level of oh look i fed a machine learning model you know a bunch of yelp reviews and it spit out more yelp reviews and look how odd they are or you know i i here's a here's a you know, strange hallucinatory scene that never would have been imagined by a human painter, but isn't it, isn't it scary or creepy or ooky? I think when you're just looking at it at the sort of formal level, you're just looking at the output of these machine learning systems at a formal level, there's not really much to hold on to. I mean, they're aesthetically really strange, and I think they will be markers of our time. And I think in a way, the kind of strangeness of generated output will be a kind of aesthetic affectation that artists in the future will try to tap mm -hmm. and channel in the same way that artists now are trying to you know evoke lo-fi analog mm -hmm. recording techniques i mean there's something kind of endearing and wonky about it that is part of what attracted me to it but i think it's all kind of difficult to connect to emotionally unless there's a human intermediary unless there's a human in mm -hmm. the loop and i'm not saying that because i'm trying to be reactionary or, or luddite or something i just think that the point of making art is to is to make meaning and to have a point of view. And as much as I want to, you know, be so evolved that I can see a machine's point of view as a valid aesthetic uh, stance, I'm not there yet. I don't think anybody no. really is. Um, it's much more interesting to, as as artists, to look at all of this material and kind of, I mean, kind of use it as a mirror, you know, kind of use it as a as a tool, use it as a, a way of kind of refracting our own past in an interesting new way. I think when, when AI goes really wrong, uh, both aesthetically and out in the greater world, you know, when it's used in, you know, predictive policing or facial recognition mm -hmm. in those scary situations, it's because we're taking um, the output at face value and we're assuming that by running a bunch of historical data through a machine learning model, we're going to get a clear extrapolation of the past that can then be projected into the future and used to predict and classify in some objective way, which is not at all how humans work. I mean, we have to take into account the fact that, um, you know, we change and we evolve and our perspectives are varied and the situations to which you apply these models are uh, extremely difficult to simplify, you know, it's all very messy. Mm -hmm. So I think, I don't know, it's an incredibly powerful tool to use if you are genuinely interested in self-inquiry and evolution and change and challenging yourself and 
um, you know, the job of making meaning and the job of making something beautiful. But if you're just trying to use it to crank out new stuff at some unprecedented volume or scale, you're never going to make sure. anything compelling or beautiful. Um, you know, that's that's the thing that that people need to remember. Mm. Um, yeah. So I mean, I think I mean, I'm, I'm touched to hear that you like our record and I, I feel the same way about Holly's record. You know, it's there's a human element that's really important a human perspective, a mediating perspective that. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it surprised me by how, in both cases, how emotional I felt about those records. Um, that was, that was a really surprising in a beautiful way to me. Um, but I want to, to, we could talk for hours because there's so much there. Um, (laughs) but I, I kind of want to shift gears a bit and, and pick up on the fact that we're sitting here in at the beginning of February, 2021, almost a year into a global pandemic. Uh, you mentioned that, that you know, when you could travel, you were beginning, you were touring that album. So, you know, for Yacht and for you, how did the pandemic impact you? Well, it was, I mean, it's heartbreaking because we worked really hard on this album and, you know, I think it's the best thing we've ever made and we were just beginning to tour it and we had just finished our European tour and we were booking all this other stuff and we were ready to go out into the world and, and undertake the grand experiment of seeing how it could be interpreted by broad audiences and all of that. And we got cut short in our opportunity to do that. And that for me is quite heartbreaking. That's the initial thing. Um, you know, obviously we can't tour anymore. We are a band that has toured aggressively throughout our careers. It's been the fundamental core of what our band is about is, you know, human connection and experience and all the wonderful interactions that you have in the world when you are on the road and the humor of it and the fun of it and the difficulty of it too, all of that is gone from our lives. I think we're fortunate in that we all have side hustles. I think many people Mm -hmm. at our level do. I mean, I'm a writer. I have a whole other career. Um, Jonna and my other bandmate, Rob, they do a lot of composition work. You know, we make, we sync songs for movies and TV. We do all the things that bands do to make money. But so financially it's not, it's not really the financial piece that we're missing so much, but it is the the part of it that defines who we are. The actual, you know, our identity as performing artists is what we're missing more than our, you know, the income that we made when we were performing. We're lucky in that sense, but I really miss that part of myself and, you know, who I am when I'm on stage and with my friends performing for people is, is a really big part of who I am. And it's something mm-hmm. that I've, I'm afraid that I've lost touch with forever now. I mean, I don't know, what it looks like to go on tour and play shows again in a year or two years. I mean, who knows when we'll be able to again, but um, you know, will I be afraid? Will I have changed? Will the audiences have changed? Will the way that we relate to one another have changed? I mean, what will it mean? Um, Mm -hmm. It's a terrifying prospect to me, honestly. I mean, I'm sort of, you know, it's difficult enough to go to the grocery store now. You know, I have an existential crisis whenever I leave my house. I can't even imagine getting on an airplane and flying to, you know, yeah. Sydney and playing a festival with thousands of people. I mean, what the hell would that feel like at this point? I don't mm-hmm. know. So I think that'll be a journey. And I, that's the thing I'm sad about. But, you know, like a lot of people, this has also been an interesting time to take a pause and reassess. You know, we've all, we've been traveling and touring for as long as we've been existing as artists. And, it's been interesting for us to try to understand who we are without that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we've been focusing a lot on recording and trying to make songs without thinking about how to be performed live. Um, just, you know, playing around in the studio, um, thinking about other things that we can do, the different projects and avenues we can expand into, trying to figure out what our next big project is going to be because mm-hmm. we orbit around big projects and it's weird not to yeah. have one. Yeah. You know, it's an existential time like it is for everybody. Yeah. It is, yeah, yeah. That's that's you put that really, really well. Um, how did you um, in, interact with your audience after after this? Um, so when you couldn't tour anymore, how did you kind of connect with your audience? Um, well, we we've been releasing music um, sort of off and on. At the very beginning of the pandemic, we we're really, maybe it was kind of a transitional thing for us, but we were so used to going like a hundred miles an hour that going, just stopping dead in our tracks was terrifying. So we decided to start recording covers and releasing covers every week. So we went through our influences and our history and started, um, you know, doing these kind of 
project songs, you know, it's a little bit easier to do something like a cover because you don't have to think about the generative side of it. And you just think about production and performance. And we were releasing covers weekly. We were releasing music videos weekly um, that we made with zero resources, just using the tools that we had at home. So mm-hmm. stop motion animation, collage, claymation, weird machine learning vision projects, um, going around Los Angeles and filming empty streets and animating on top of them, that kind of thing. Uh, which was really fun for us. But then when the summer came around and all of the sort of social justice and racial justice protests started picking up in the US, it started feeling self-indulgent and petty to make music. Mm. So we started fundraising instead. And we did a lot. We basically went through our entire archive of merch in our garage and auctioned it off to the highest bidder until we'd raised, I think, almost $10,000 for different social justice causes. Mm. And that's kind of how we've operated from this point forward is we know that we're not going to be making a ton of music. I mean, ton of money from touring or, and we've never really made a ton of money from selling records. So we've just sort of decided that whatever we sell, we'll just give it away. <laughs> so we've just been doing a lot of band camp releases and, and raising money for, you know, the local food bank or local and national mutual aid funds and bail funds and, you know, small organizations that we care about and believe in, in our area. And, I don't know. It's a way of putting our music to work when we can't work. Uh, yeah. It's something to do that makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we're connected to our community. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, we're still, we're, we're fortunate that we have a fan base that has supported us in that way. I mean, they buy the, they buy the stuff and we raise the money and we get, you know, we correspond with our fans and stuff like that, but we, we haven't live streamed and we haven't done, you know, virtual performance I haven't figured out a way to do it that makes me feel good yet. I, I see other people do it. There are ways of doing it. There are certain kinds of performing artists for whom it works, I think, more than others. We're really a li- I mean, we're really a live band. I don't think I don't think it translates very well for us. Um, that's just me being pragmatic. You you mentioned coming back and you you're not sure what that'll look like. Um, you've mm-hmm. had a chance to reflect. Um, you know, I hope we were talking before this that I hope that 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 the whole human race takes this opportunity to reflect on how, you know how how we love our lives, what's important to us, um, how we inhabit mm-hmm. uh, this 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 rock that we live on. Um, but how do you think that that you and Yacht will come back into you know into into the public? after the after you're able to travel and tour again do you think there'll be anything different and better or well i think i hope <laughs> let's say that I, I i have a feeling and i hope that people coming out of this are going to be so grateful to participate in art and culture and they're going to realize I think to a greater degree than they ever have before, how meaningful art is in their lives. I mean, the things that I miss as a, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily miss going to the shopping mall, but I would like, I would die to go to a museum. I would love to go to a lecture. I would love to go to a concert. I mean, my enthusiasm for all that stuff is going to be so massive as soon as I'm able to do it again. I'm never going to take it for granted again. I think that's true for everyone that I know. So, I mean, my hope is that once we're able to do live music again, there will be a wonderful enthusiasm for it. And there will be uh, sweetness and tenderness too. You know, there will be this kind of gratitude that maybe was lacking before. I mean, I, I think we've always been lucky in that department, but I think people will be genuinely happy to be with others and to be experiencing music. And they will have hopefully, you know, more of an open mind and more of an open spirit for those kinds of experiences, because we never know when we're going to get them again. I think, I think that's really important. So, I mean, that's my hope is that, you know, everything, everything in the arts and culture world bounces back harder than ever before, full of, you know, enthusiastic and grateful participants. That's certainly going to be my attitude moving forward. You know, I'm never going to take it for granted again. I'm never going to, you know, on one of those, you know, bad days on the, on tour when no one shows up to the gig or the van breaks down or the weather is terrible or the plane is late, all that stuff that you said, wear me down and make me feel exhausted and and over it I'm never gonna be angry about any of that stuff again because just being able to do what we do in the world is so meaningful to me and 
I'm going to yeah. be so grateful to do it again. I also, I'm going to be so, I mean, all I want to do now is work on big projects with friends. You know, I want to bring people into our little world as much as possible. I want to connect people with one another. You know, I want to, I want to make big things with communities of people that I care about. And I want to distribute those things to communities of people that are going to be grateful and happy to see them. <laughs> those are, those are very much the things I miss too. I mean, I don't miss, I don't know, um, an expensive suit or, or, um, you know, I, I miss, I miss gigs, museums, performances of all sorts. I miss meals with friends. I'm, you know, that, those are, you know, these, mm-hmm. these human connection things, you know, I, I, I agree with you, and I hope that most people agree with you that that coming back that we're going to that we're going to truly value those things. So um, we get to the end now, but I just want to ask you whether you have have anything else you'd like to say, any other points you'd like to make before we we end. No, I don't think I think we've covered quite a lot of ground. Is there anything? Is there anything else you want to know? Well, yeah, tons, but but I'm also conscious of time. I mean, this has been great. I mean, the whole the whole question of how technology is used, how science is used, you know, that you that you just touched on with machine learning. And I was a research chemist, and I you know seeing how how that's been used, seeing how how science gets a bad rap for how people use it. Um, mm-hmm. it it is just things and it's just like how we use them is, is so important, but, but we can't go there because we're already (laughs) over time. So how do people, first of all, please listen to chain tripping. It's a fabulous album. Um, And how do people get in touch with you? Um, Well, teamyacht.com is the yacht website, T E A M yacht, Y A C H T. We actually just spent, a good chunk of our pandemic time converting our website into a massive archive of every project we've ever done. So if you're feeling <laughs> bored on some quarantine afternoon, there's 15 years of odd um, technological interventions uh, to browse and explore in our back catalog. Um, my website is clairelevans.com. That's mostly a book website for, for my book, Broadband, and some of my other writing. Uh, Broadband just came out in paperback this summer. So pick it up at your local independent bookseller and uh yeah we're on social media at all the expected places just look for yacht um it's if you see a picture of a boat you're in the wrong place (laughs) yes and your website is is fascinating to look at um it's it's designed in a really interesting (laughs) way that's what i'm going to say so please everyone go and look at it it's it's really interesting um it's 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 different it's stimulating Thanks so much, Claire, for your time. And thank you. Yeah, it's been great. Um, Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please, as usual, tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Give us ratings on your podcast platform of choice. Tell us who you'd like us to have on the show. And thanks for your time listening. And please come back and and, uh, listen to some more episodes.